News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The Pete Callender Show continues. I am the Pete. Thanks so much for hanging out. I appreciate it. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. I hope folks enjoyed uh, John Hood as much as I did in the last hour. And uh, I want to sort of work off of segue into this, uh, this topic. I actually pulled it. I don't know, probably a month ago. I've just been sitting on it, um, waiting for the right moment. And I feel like this is it. There was a piece by J. Grant Addison at uh, the Washington Examiner. And the headline on it was called, No Such Thing as Valueless Education. There's no such thing as valueless education. What is he talking about? Well, he says, for the past two years, two distinct but connected phenomena have dominated American schooling. The first of these is the COVID-19 pandemic and its associated school closures, the masks, the vaccine mandates, the online learning, right? That's the first. The second is the rapacious embrace of racial and gender identity politics in K-12 classrooms. The latter, of course, has been permeating American education for many years, but was thrown into acute focus following the killing of George Floyd in 2020. Students uh, Students, largely helpless parents, meanwhile, have had to watch their kids face undue social isolation, lose foundational years of behavioral and intellectual development, or be told that the color of their skin marks them as either indelibly wicked or hopelessly oppressed. School board meetings gave these parents a chance to be heard. Elections for both school board and statewide offices made sure somebody was listening. And this rational, peaceful exercise in civic life was met with outrage from education officials, from unions, and their supporters. That fight was useful in an important way. It elevated the questions... What role should parents play in their, in their kids' education? And also, what role should teachers play in moral instruction? I thought this was a perfect framing of what a lot of this fight, this critical race theory, gender theory, right? Teach history, you know, teach all the history. You're against teaching history. Like, all of this fight. These are the two questions. What's the role for parents in their kids' education? But also, what is the role for the parent or for the teachers in moral education, moral instruction? Do they have a role in that? The near uniform answers offered by Democratic politicians, interest groups, and the educational establishment are pretty revealing, if unsurprising. Right? To the first question, they tend to say no, none. Parents, no role in deciding what the kids are taught in the schools. We heard it. Time and time again during the debate over the last you know two years or so, we've heard people say, oh, you don't get to dictate what's in the curriculum. We have experts. We have expertise. We'll determine what your kids are taught. And then, of course, the answer to the second question is, what role should teachers play in the moral instruction? And they say, well, whatever role they want. They should be free to do what they want to do. Hang flags, post posters, tell their kids their students to keep secrets from their parents, 
give instructional videos on sexual intercourse, all of this. They are free to do whatever because that teacher knows best because I'm a teacher. And I have to assume that you're not learning the, you know, the things that you need to learn from home. Transparency bills then come along, right? Uh, state legislatures start passing bills that require transparency. And the uh, ACLU and the teachers unions, they say, oh, well, these transparency bills, these are just thinly veiled attempts at chilling teachers and students from learning and talking about race and gender in schools. Parents that have never been involved before now want to take over school boards. This was their, like, this is their big fear. Or how about this? New York Magazine, Sarah Jones, that parents desire to have a say in their kids' education. That's actually a ploy to expand the power of the Republican Party, which is, quote, ever eager to privatize education. Conservatives imagine the parent as a household tyrant. The patriarchal household is the seed of all authoritarianism. This sentiment is not a recent development. On the contrary. J. Grant Addison goes to say here, central to the longstanding ideology undergirding the American education system is the proposition that schooling is meant to liberate students from the values and assumptions of their parents. Political scientist (laughs) Melissa Harris Perry, she of MSNBC, you remember this? Back in 2013, it was a promo. It was actually one of those, I mean, you, we run promos on WBT, right? You hear uh, Bernie will, you know, take some soundbite from something I'm ranting about, and he'll condense it down, make me sound smart, put some music underneath it, and that's a promo. Well, that's what they did with Melissa Harris-Perry. And she said, remember, quote, we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to the whole communities. This belief is central to the invasive, ambiguous collectivism that then First Lady Hillary Clinton attempted to dress up in the aw shucks colloquialism. It takes a village. That was 1996. These are not new concepts. The long march through the institutions has been marching for a long time, folks. 1987. There was a a book called Democratic Education. Former University of Pennsylvania president and current U.S. ambassador to Germany, Amy Gutman, argued that all significant policy regarding education operates from a theory, a political theory of the proper role of government in education. And it warns against those theories that depoliticize education by placing it as much as possible in the province of parental authority. See? This has been going on for decades. Debates over education are inherently value-laden, got a lot of values all inside of the education uh, debates. And among those value judgments lies a question regarding the proper role of government in educating its citizens in the first place. In North Carolina, our Constitution says that, that we have the right to an education. Government shall provide the education. 
and they set up the public school system to do it. Inherent in that, then, is a discussion about what values are we teaching? What are the values we should teach? So when people say, oh, I just want to teach the history, and you don't want to teach the history, that's not actually the discussion. That's not the question at play. It's not the operable question. The question is about the values that those historical lessons convey. What are those values? And if you are coming at it from an opinion that the values that America's history conveys are evil, then I would submit you should not be in the business of conveying any of those values through taxpayer-funded schools. But I'm willing to compromise with you. That compromise is vouchers. Yes, more vouchers. And then you can go teach your America-hating stuff someplace else, right? And then everybody gets their own choice. That's my compromise. It's a limited time offer. I don't know how long until it expires. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, got an email from Jennifer who said, Enjoyed the segment with John Hood. Being from Western North Carolina, well, my family is, I'm excited to read these books. I ordered both of them. No read. No need to read this on the, oh, well. Um, <laughs> no, I appreciate John coming in. And I do think, that uh, we need stories, and we need the same stories. We need a diversity of stories. We want a lot of stories, but we all need to understand the stories, and and we need to share them about our country, about our history, and they need to be stories that promote the ideas and ideals of what the country is supposed to be about. And... Uh, We don't have things that unite us except our ideals. That's the thing. That's what made us different from every other country. We're founded on ideas. Wasn't blood, wasn't soil, wasn't, you know, generations of, you know, kings and giving people land and such. Like, that's not the, that's not what unites us. And I understand We don't have a perfect history. I understand the people that founded the country did not live up to the ideals that they wrote down on the paper. I get that. Hypocrites. I get it. I agree. Fine. But they also wrote that down, and there were people that struggled with it, and there were people that were like, we really need to solve this right now. But we can't, because if we try to, then it doesn't ever get formed. And I kind of suspect, I'm talking about, obviously, the slavery issue, There were people that did not want to join up and create the federal government unless slavery was done away with. And there were others that said, if you do that, we're not joining. And so they knew that this was going to be settled at some point. But if they tried to do it at the beginning, it never would have been founded. And I kind of suspect that a lot of the people that say uh, uh, that are the harshest critics of that decision at that time, America's original sin, that they would have preferred that it just never have happened. Not slavery, but the entire country. That that they would have drawn the line in the sand, they would have said no slavery, and at that point then it would have been different countries. And we never would have had the United States of America, right? I kind of suspect there are people that wish that would have been the way it went. 
We need stories. Stories are powerful. And this is why the corrupting of the storytelling in K-12 government education is so dangerous. Back to this piece by J. Grant Addison. It's at the Washington Examiner. He says the debates over education are inherently value laden. And among those value judgment lies a question regarding the proper role of government in educating its citizenry. This is the messy debate so many parents find themselves in today. He says the issue of who teaches students and how also the extent of parents say over a child's curriculum or classroom environment, the role of the government in prescribing or allowing certain methods of instruction or doctrine. Right? These are all questions about values, and there's no getting around it. Robert Pondicio from American Enterprise Institute, he said, quote, schools are the institutions we build to transmit to children the values, habits, stories, and ideas that we value. In one word, culture. That's what schools are conveying. And by the way, the social justice warriors, the the church of wokeism, they know this. The problem is you believed them when they denied it. To think there would be no debate about what that comprises, what the culture comprises, is to misunderstand entirely what a school is and the purpose it serves in civil society. There is a discomfort among some parents, though, especially those who consider themselves to be not very political. And even some conservatives, by the way, when it comes to discussing the values in the realm of education, there is this misguided notion that, oh, we're not trying to, you know, project our values onto you. This is due, though, to an explicit attempt in recent decades to pretend that mass public education could be somehow value neutral, that schools were simply in the business of transmitting information dispassionately and equipping students with a, you know, like a a clinical problem-solving ability. That's not what schools do. That's not what they've been doing. And even if that was their mission, do you think they're succeeding any better at that than they are at, I don't know, teaching kids to read? Come now. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Yeah, K-12 schools, government schools, inherently value-laden, inherently so. Designed for the purpose of transmitting our culture, the values of our culture, our stories, our habits, all of it. Designed to transmit all of that to the kids, to the next generation. Carl Kessel detailed in his book, Pillars of the Republic, Common Schools in American Society from 1780 to 1860. In early American schooling, he wrote, quote, the upward mobility of the students was incidental. Incidental. Didn't matter. Like, oh, look at that. That kid. He made something of himself. Oh, good for him. (laughs) That's it. The main thrust was moral education. 
and literacy was directed more to this purpose than to individual advancement. The Founding Fathers considered education necessary in helping to reconcile freedom with order. Freedom with order. Yes, too much freedom, you descend into chaos. I've talked about this before. It's a linear, uh, uh, well, it's, it's a line. It's a linear layout of uh, forms of government. People think, oh, left, right. Think more in terms of tyranny, anarchy. Tyranny is total control. Anarchy is zero control, right? You want to be closer to the anarchy side than the tyranny side. I mean, the founders did. I agree with them. Because that's where you find the most amount of freedom. And what freedom does allow is people to unleash their creativity. And then everybody benefits from that. That's the idea. And so the founders considered education necessary in helping to reconcile that freedom with order. They sought to instill a unifying Republican virtue, not uh, capital R Republican Party virtue, but lowercase r Republican virtue, into the citizenry by way of a thoroughly American curriculum. That was the point. We all have an idea about what the founders tried to do, why they did it. Here's their explanations for it. Here are the responsibilities you have, I have as citizens. This is what we're supposed to know. We're supposed to understand, for example, federalism. We should all understand federalism. We should all understand uh, the separation of powers. We should understand the branches of government, right? These are the things that we should understand, but also the rationale for these things. Why do they exist? Why did they come up with these ideas? What is it about the economic system that the founders chose to implement? Why was that preferred? But as one of the uh, purveyors of government education said back in the, uh, I guess this was like 150 years ago when they imported the, uh, the Prussian model to America, they said, We are not attempting to create men of letters. That wasn't the point. Education can never truly be valueless. This again from J. Grant Addison at the Washington Examiner. He says, quote, as parents across the country are learning, the very idea that a parent has a right to be involved in what his or her child is taught is now itself up for debate. And that is a value matter, right? That's a value. So we're still arguing. So he, like it is by its very definition, the argument we're having proves the argument. The fact that you're arguing about whether parents should be able to inform or dictate what a curriculum is, that is a value proposition too. Um, he goes on to say, to do uh, those in command of much of the public education apparatus disagree vehemently with the premise that parents can influence the curriculum because that's their value that they would like injected, right? They're trying to promulgate that value. The relativistic aspiration of a value-neutral education was always unsustainable. Tim Carney at the Washington Examiner says it was also somewhat dishonest. You're always imposing some kind of values. There's a bigger picture here. This arc of the left preaching a relativism that never could be sustainable. 
but this relativism functioned to clear out other religions and value sets. And then into that vacuum has to come something. And that something turned out to be why the assumptions and the values of the left. I know, strictly coincidental. The authority of parents over their child is the originating relationship of authority for all existence, though. That is the foundational block. Parent and kid. It predates that of the state. It predates everything. It is not an inherently authoritarian construction. It is not tyranny. Contrary to what these leftists and and educrats have been saying for the last two years or so, whether owing to biology, natural law, maybe religious and secular morality, whatever the ideology you wish to credit, this relationship is one prime towards the encouragement of human flourishing. Freedom without restraint or order is not liberty. It is ruinous license. That's what parents should be teaching. That's what the K-12 should be teaching. Freedom without restraint or order is not liberty. It is ruinous license. He goes on to say that the state's role in, uh, is to support the parents in carrying out their obligations rather than to bypass the parents or usurp the parental educational authority, except in cases of abuse or neglect. The right of parents to be involved in a matter so central to raising their kid is so obvious that it should really not even be necessary to defend, right? But how do you put that into policy? How do you codify that? Because obviously we now have to do that because people are stupid nowadays. Well, school choice gives parents what they want regardless of which side they are on. Pluralism necessitates the space for competing visions or beliefs. That should be the case. But one of the central interests for a nation to educate its citizenry should involve a healthy, acculturative narrative of that nation's virtues and values and ideas. America's not perfect, and that should not be forgotten or obscured. But neither should this ever-ongoing journey towards the ideal of a more perfect union that has existed since its very beginning. So what is the purpose of education? That's what we should be asked. And then the next question should swiftly be, what do we want the next generations of Americans to think about America? Because that's what you're teaching. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So all of that about the values that are conveyed via K-12 education, that's actually at the root of this fight over critical race theory, which doesn't exist and isn't being taught, but totally does exist and actually is being taught. And yes, I have the examples. The values are being transmitted. And there are people that work in these institutions that wish to transmit values and wish for you to have not a lot of say in the values they are transmitting. Um, don't take my word for it. Janelle George, adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy, where she teaches a course 
on racial inequality in K-12 public education. She has worked in the U.S. Senate, U.S. House of Representatives, and for several nonprofits. And she wrote a piece at Education Week. Headline, Critical Race Theory Isn't a Curriculum. It's a Practice. What, what, what have I been saying? What have, what have the critics been saying of CRT all this time? It's praxis, which is the socialist, that's the commie word for it, praxis, the Marx used, praxis, which is the practice. The concept of critical race theory has recently been vilified by politicians, she says. Several states have even banned schools from teaching critical race theory. If I taught at a public university in Idaho rather than in Washington, recent legislation would prohibit me from applying a CRT lens in my classroom. There it is. We are at the point in the argument where they finally start acknowledging, okay, yes, this is what we've been doing. And what they've been doing is saying that the United States is a nation founded on white supremacy and oppression, and that these forces are still at the root of our society. See? So what are the values that you are trying to convey to transmit to the next generation of Americans? What do you want that next generation of Americans to know about America? Well, Miss Janelle George would like them to know that America is inherently racist. That's what she wants them to know. To be clear, she says, CRT is not itself a substantive course or workshop. It is a practice. It is an approach or a lens through which an educator can help students examine the role of race and racism in American society. It originated in the legal academy. I first learned about it as a law student and has since been adopted in other fields in higher education. (gasps) Wait a minute. Are you suggesting that it is used in education then? In the K-12 classroom, CRT can be an approach to help students understand how racism has endured past the civil rights era through systems and laws and policies and how those same systems, laws, and policies can be transformed. Right? That's She's saying out loud the thing that the critics have been saying and that the supporters have denied that the supporters say. Right? They, they, they've denied that this is what it's about that this is how it's being used. That CRT is an approach to help students understand how racism has endured beyond the civil rights era. We, in other words, we, we, we didn't solve racism, right? And it's in our systems, laws, and policies and how those can be transformed. Because that's the thing about CRT, much like communism, it's always about the work. When you hear people talk about the work, you know, you should know by now what they're talking about. They're talking about Marxism. <laughs> That's what it is, the work. That's why there's always this like, oh, I just, it's just exhausting. I'm just so tired doing the work. Like they're put out upon, like, or put upon. That, that somehow or another, like I'm making them do these things. And oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Oh. Telling people they're racist is exhausting. Banning the use of CRT, she says, robs teachers of a valuable teaching tool. Again, that's not being implemented or used at all. But banning it, that would be wrong because it robs them of a tool that isn't being used. 
She says, maybe that's the point. I have seen how applying critical race theory as a framework for understanding the educational inequities harming students of color can help my students trace the trajectory from the origins of inequities to their current manifestations. Does the third grader know how to read? I'm going to take it right back to a sort of fundamental question. Does your third grader know how to read at a third grade level? Okay, how about this? Does your kindergartner know how to read a little bit at an age-appropriate level? No? Okay, how about this? How about we make sure that they all know how to read before we teach them about uh, how many genders there are? How about we teach them to count before we have them count the genders? How about that? Is that asking too much? Because that's a value I think we should probably transmit to the kids. Simple literacy first. How about, how about you try to knock that one out of the park, folks? Once you get a handle on that, then I'm thinking maybe we do some math. A little bit of math. So like a super focus on literacy so people know how to read. Then, then you start to kind of backfill with some math, with some ciphering. Then how about history? And you start civics and history, start at the founding. And you could talk about all of the different things, but you got to transmit the idea that America is a unique place that was founded on an ideal that all people are created equal. Did we meet that ideal when we were founded? No, we did not. But we were founded on it. That matters. Transmit that. Baby steps. I'm just offering up some baby step solutions here. I understand if you guys master the, 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 the teaching of the reading... And then you master the teaching of the, the mathin, and then you can master the teaching of the history. And maybe we'll move on to some, you know, really difficult subjects. Maybe then we can have a conversation about how many genders there are. But until you get those fundamentals down, I'm, I'm thinking, no, let's just stick to our knitting. Brett Winterbull's coming up next. Stick around. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.